verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, love each other. The word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. How you doing today? You showed up and you made it on a holiday weekend. Good job. Way to go. I want to tell you about uh, uh, a guy that I met in the eighth grade. Uh, his name is Jason. And uh, I had just started in a new school in the eighth grade. My last school I had only been at for less than a year. So there was a lot of change happening and it was hard to make new friends. And at this new school in the eighth grade, the activity that we all did at recess was basketball, which is how I made my first eighth grade enemy in the new school. That's this guy, Jason. This guy was such a jerk. He was better at basketball than I am consistently, and it was really frustrating. Not only that, though, he was gloating all the time about it. He was constantly talking trash on the court, and instantly he became my enemy. Eventually, though, he did become my best friend. Uh, best friend for years and years, one of the best men at my wedding, someone who I've always been in contact with. But it took a long time to kind of foster that relationship with him. And of course, like any friendship, there are a lot of different pieces to it that created the right environment for us to end up having a good uh, friendship with each other. Some of that was even just like conflict. We would have conflict with each other over the years, like um, when I dated his ex-girlfriend in high school. But I asked him first, and he said it was okay. But then it wasn't. So then we broke up, and then, and then he went out with her again and, and asked me if it was okay, and I said it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> we looked at each other after that, and we're like, never again? Never again. All right. There are significant events, you know, right, that can help form friendship, but sometimes it's also just kind of being with each other. Uh, Jason and I, one of our favorite pastimes that we did consistently on the weekends is that we would just sit at his house and read uh, separate books silently and just sit there for hours and hours reading our books, just being with each other. And every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this book's so good. Oh, yeah, this book's so great. We're such nerds. Anyway. <laughs> then there were times where we were really there for each other. Uh, like when I left my mom's house, I'm like, I'm, I just need to get out of here. Uh, I don't know if you call it running away, but that's, I left the house. And I'm like, Jason, I need a place to stay. I just need somewhere to go. Yeah, of course, man. You can come over to my place. We've got room for you. It's going to be okay. But you know your mom's going to know where you are, right? 
because we pretty much hang out every single day. And sure enough, that didn't last uh, too long. A big part of the friendship really is that we, uh, we disclosed ourselves to one another. We learned a lot about each other. We didn't withhold from each other. Um, and it was in that that really helped us to form a bond of friendship together. But what really tied us together, I think, was that we had shared experiences. Not that we did them together, but it was that we understood each other because we both had similar childhood experiences. Uh, we had come from broken families. We had absent fathers. Uh, we had traumatized mothers. We were relatively poor uh, compared to the rest of the kids in school. And so we just kind of understood each other in that way. Well, in our early 20s, Jason and I in the same year moved to different states. And we have been in those different states ever since. So we still keep in touch with each other. His birthday was this week, so I was just in touch with him this week for his birthday. But I haven't seen Jason in 15 years now, since his wedding. That was the last time uh, that, I, that I got to see him. Um, so we keep in touch, but it's been a little while. That's how probably some of your friendships have been. Maybe you've had similar experiences to that. Friendship is really important. It's important for us not only psychologically, but it's important for us biologically as well. So when we have friendships, that actually uh, affects our, our mental and our emotional health, and it can even affect our biological health as well. And you may have heard that we are right now in an epidemic of loneliness in our country where people are distancing themselves from others. They're less connected with other human beings. And not only is it hard to be lonely, but it really affects you, not only your mental health and your emotional health, but even your biological, your physical health as well. It just ripples out and affects the rest of your life. We need friends. We were made to have friends and to be in relationship with people. But I know, like sometimes it's just, it's hard to make friends, right? Well, I got a tip for you. Here you go. If somebody stops me to ask for directions, I give them directions to my house. <laughs> See you in 20 minutes, new best friend. <laughs> we're not talking about friendship all summer long, though. We're talking about prayer. That's the series that we're in right now in prayer. We're gonna take the summer to really think about prayer, <clears throat> to study it, and to hopefully engage in prayer more as well. We just had a prayer and worship night here. Uh, was that last week or the week before? It was great. And we've got two more of those coming. You heard about the prayer course. We invite you to engage in those things, to engage more in prayer as we go through this series. In the first few weeks of this series, we're just kind of laying the foundations of everything, which really what it comes down to is prayer is an invitation to come home to be with God, and it's in prayer where we cultivate our friendship with God. That's the first few weeks here, laying the foundation. And then the coming weeks, we're going to look at prayers from the Hebrew Bible, so Israelite prayers, and we're going to look at prayers of Jesus, so prayers that are in the Gospels, and then we're going to be looking at apostolic prayers, that is the prayers of the apostles who wrote the letters that we find in the New Testament. Our hope is that through this, 
we will move from a strictly transactional prayer where we just go to God for something and try to receive that something when we need it, and we move more toward a relational, a communal, and a transformational prayer. Because prayer is our only real hope. You think about what's going on in our world, maybe what's going on in your life right now, if you have a realistic view of what's going on for you personally or in the world, you know prayer is your only hope. But if we think we can do life on our own, we aren't really gonna take prayer very seriously. With a realistic view of our lives though, it's gonna lead us back toward prayer every single time. So the goal here really is to create an invitation to be with God and to behold God and to desire other things less and more to desire being with God. And today in that process, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And just to give you a little bit of context for this passage, there's a block in the Gospel of John called the Upper Room Discourse. That's often what we call it. And it's chapters 13 through 17, and it's the time right before Jesus is going to be crucified and he gets this uh, moment with his 12 disciples. In chapters 13 through 17, he starts off by washing their feet. And then he shares a Passover meal with them. And then as he's reclining with them around that table, he spends the rest of the time teaching them and talking to them and preparing them for everything that is about to come, which is going to be hard. But it's in that intimate space with his disciples that he calls them friends. Last week, we talked a little bit about friendship as well. And John, he talked about it in the context of Moses. Moses as the friend of God. Toward the end of that uh, sermon last week, he made the connection that the glory of God that Moses saw is actually the same glory that we see in Jesus. So today we're going to tease that idea out a little bit more, that the way that we can have friendship with God is because Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh and experienced humanity. Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's got a really funny name, Unless you're Swiss. Maybe it's just like a totally normal name in Switzerland. I don't know. Anyway, he was a brilliant 20th century theologian. And he had to say this about the incarnation. He said it was essential that Christ, in his incarnation, should bring the fullness of heaven to earth. Essential that he should translate God's invisible unity, that is God's perfect holiness, the essence of who God is, that he should translate that into the eloquent language of human existence with its change, its growth, its strivings, undertakings, suffering, its dying. In other words, we can't really experience friendship with God if God had not become human because we wouldn't be able to comprehend him. We wouldn't be able to relate to him in any way. 
But in Jesus, through the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, we're able to relate to him, and he is able to relate to us. In fact, Jesus sympathizes with us. He is a sympathetic friend. And by sympathetic, I mean that he has experienced the same feelings or many of the same things that you and I have experienced. He knows what those things are. That's part of what made Jason and I good friends. We had had similar experiences in life. We knew what it was like to come from broken homes and to not have everything that we wanted all the time. Jesus went through that experience of humanity, coming in the flesh, suffering and dying, but even before that suffering and dying, just experiencing humanity in order that we could relate to him and that he could call us friends. So what does this friendship look like, though? What does it look like, and how does it affect our prayers? So John chapter 15, we're going to start off in verse 15 here, where Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves. That's what this translation says. Servants is another very good translation. I prefer that one. Because a master doesn't confide in his servants. Now you are my friends, since I've told you everything the Father told me. Jesus says that his disciples have gone from servants to friends because he has revealed to them what the Father has revealed to him. This is basically like if, you know, a servant uh, isn't invited into what the master is doing. A servant is just told what the master is doing. But when you're a friend, you're invited into the master's plans to be able to hear more from him. And it's because of that revelation from Jesus, from the Father, and then Jesus revealing all that the Father has done to his friends that we actually get to be called friends of God. I wonder how often we actually, we think that we can't actually know God in some way. Have you ever thought that God is too mysterious to know? I mean, that's a pretty common notion, right? That God is mystery, that God is unknowable. You just talk to anybody in your circles, you'll find people who think that. The thing is, like, God doesn't fit in a box. He's certainly not nice and easy and fit, you know, within a box. There are things that I ponder about God and wonder about God and don't understand about God all the time. That's good. I'm glad that God does not fit into my box because if he did, I could control him and I know that I can't. But if God is unknowable, that's a problem for us. That's a real problem. If Jason withheld himself from me, and didn't actually reveal who he was to me, we would not really have been very good friends. The deeper knowing leads to a more intimate 
friendship. Until eventually you reach a point like this. We'll be best friends forever because you already know too much. <laughs> Jesus knows too much about you. But he still calls you friends. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but one of the most important things in our human development is to be known by other people. And in the context of God, it is to be known by God and for God to be known by us. God is not unknowable. He's made himself known to humanity always. He has always done something to reveal himself to humanity. But Jesus is the fullest revelation of who he is for all of us. God wants to be known by you. He's not hiding away from you. He's not trying to be mysterious or coy or elusive. He wants to be known by you. And it's in prayer in scripture that we get to know Jesus better, where we get to cultivate that relationship, that friendship with Jesus. Jesus didn't dwell among his people, experience humanity, go through suffering and dying to remain unknowable. This revelation, it goes the other way too. When we approach God in prayer, we need to approach revealing ourselves in full truth of who we are to God. That full revelation is not only good in terms of our relationship with God, but it means we're being honest with ourselves as well. Paul Miller, he's an author, he wrote this. Before you can abide, abide is kind of a key word in this passage. It appears again and again in this passage. Before you can abide, the real you has to meet the real God. The real you has to meet the real God. If you're approaching God in prayer with a bit of a veneer over everything, you're still in this sense of a transactional prayer with him. If I show up in a certain way, maybe God will hear my prayer a little bit better or honor what I have to say. But I think Jesus prefer, prefers provocative over proper. If that is who we really are and what we are bringing, who we are bringing of ourselves to Jesus, he'd rather have it provocative than proper. Sometimes I think our prayers need to look a little bit more like our lobby right now. A little torn up, a little gritty, not so pretty, but in progress, right? Jesus offers us not this casual friendship. It's a friendship that actually comes through pain and trial. That's what we see in verse 13 of our passage here. Jesus says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus isn't teaching about friendship generally here. He's not like trying to make a principle about friendship. He's talking about himself. 
He is the one who is going to lay down his life for his friends. And friendship that sacrifices creates a bond between two people. And the sacrifice of Jesus created a powerful bond between those who trust in him and him as well. This is an important thing to be able to experience those sacrifices in friendship. You think about any of your friendships and even like small sacrifices, how that can go for you. There was this one time I was driving uh, an 80-mile stretch of lonely highway in Northern California uh, through the Redwoods in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m., and there are no lights on this highway at all. I'm driving my 1988 Chevy Beretta. If you know that car, I mean, this car, let me tell you, it was, the, it was the kind of thing where the roof lining had all separated from the ceiling of the car. So it like sagged down and like formed a pillow on my head as I was driving. <laughs> it was totally rusted out and everything. And it smelled bad, and anyway, that was the last time I drove that car because at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night on a lonely highway, the car broke down, and it never drove again, and there wasn't much of a shoulder on that highway, so I had to pull off into this little road behind the trees in order to get off the highway. Well, I had a cell phone, which wasn't incredibly common back then, but I called Jason at 2 a.m. The service was terrible. He could barely hear me, but I'm like, I need you to come get me, please. And so at 2 a.m., he drove like 30 or 40 miles until he could find me in the dark on the side of the highway. It's a sacrifice like that, right, that helps to build up friendship. And yet how much greater is the sacrifice that Jesus has for us? Can you think of a friend that has made a sacrifice for you or one that you've made that kind of sacrifice for? The revelation of Jesus took us from servants to friends. The sacrifice of Jesus did a much bigger thing. It took us from enemies to friends, or maybe even from enemies to adopted children. You remember, Jason and I, we were enemies at first. And I don't know all the things that made us friends, Maybe it was by accident. I don't know. Like when you're stalking your enemy on Insta and you accidentally send a friend request. <laughs> what Jesus did wasn't an accident. <laughs> Sorry, my wife's laughing at me. <laughs> did you just say, oh dear? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> what Jesus did wasn't an accident though, in making us friends from enemies. The Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Roman church in the first century, and in that letter, he wrote this. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Jesus isn't looking for a casual buddy friendship, he's given everything in order to call you his friend. And that sacrifice also allows him to be a sympathetic friend because he's experienced a lot in his humanity. 
and ultimately paid the price for all of us. Have you ever felt lonely? The Gospels seem to indicate that Jesus felt lonely. Have you ever experienced rejection? Jesus experienced rejection. Have you ever experienced physical pain? Or are you in physical pain right now? Jesus experienced a lot of physical pain. Do you have a lot of stress in your life? I think Jesus had to deal with a lot of stress. Are you in conflict with people? Jesus was in conflict with pretty much everybody. <laughs> have you ever felt like the people closest to you don't actually respect you? Jesus was rejected by his own family and in his hometown. Knowing this can change the way that we approach Jesus in prayer. When we approach God in prayer, we often need something like guidance, right? Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. When we're in a difficult situation, psychologists say there are two things that we need. We need emotional support and we need cognitive support. The emotional support is we need somebody who can sympathize or empathize with us in order to tend to our emotions. But we also need cognitive support, which is we need someone who can help us get out of our problem, give us some advice or whatever they can do. And this is what Jesus is able to do, both of those things. We know and trust that he's powerful. We know and trust that all wisdom and knowledge is hidden in him, as it says in the book of Colossians. But now we also know, right, that he is a sympathetic friend. He can tend to the emotional needs that we have and the cognitive needs that, he, that, we, that, uh, that we have. That means that when we approach him in prayer, depending on whatever we're going through in that particular moment, in that space, we're not going just with the request. If we're in a painful circumstance, we can approach Jesus knowing that he has gone through something like that. Lord, I know that you have experienced the kind of rejection that I'm feeling right now. Lord, I know that you have been through incredible pain in your life. And you know that I'm in pain right now as well. Would you help me with that? Would you free me from that? That's just some of the practical ways that we can pray knowing that Jesus is sympathetic. So that's great. Jesus has called us friends. He has actually taken us from enemies to friends. And he is sympathetic with us in what we've uh, experienced. But there are a couple of hang-ups that I have in this passage around prayer. And the first one comes from verse 16, where Jesus says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. The Father's going to give me whatever I ask for. I mean, that's pretty great because there are a lot of things that I want. And this is a great way for a friendship to work out if he's going to give me everything that I want. Yeah. I don't know, maybe Jesus just kind of slipped up 
when he said that. Maybe he didn't mean it. Except that he says it again and again and again. He says it throughout the Gospels. And in fact, he says it several times just in the upper room discourse here. If we flip back to chapter 14, he says, you can ask for anything in my name and I'll do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Or chapter 16, if we flip ahead a little bit, he says, I tell you the truth, you'll ask the Father directly and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. He says this kind of stuff all over the place. Now, this is honestly one of the more challenging things that I personally have had to wrestle through in my understanding of prayer and the things that Jesus has said. These are hard things that he says, and the reason why it's hard is because it doesn't always match with my experience. I don't always get what I want. Of course, like you and I know intuitively that we don't just get whatever we want, right? We have this little thing called reality that we have to deal with, <laughs> where all my wildest dreams are ruined by reality. But even if we're not talking about our wildest dreams, there's still this question that is God going to answer my prayers? Will he provide healing? Will he provide a job or housing? Will, he, will my family ever come to know him as I've been praying for many and many years? Do I even want to bring my request to him because I'm afraid that I might be disappointed with whatever the result is? Now, there's no quick or easy answers to any of this. These are the kinds of questions that we need to sit with for quite a while. But I think part of, at least a key part, of understanding what is happening here when Jesus is saying this is that it has to do with our desires. What are the things that we actually want? There's this section in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, and there are these two stories right next to each other in Mark chapter 10. And in both of these stories, two people and then another one person come up to Jesus, and Jesus asks them the same question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The first interaction uh, it comes from two of the disciples, James and John. They come up to Jesus and they say, hey, teacher, uh, give us whatever we ask you. Okay, Jesus says, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they say, when you come in glory, let us sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus says, well, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you undergo the suffering that I'm about to undergo? And they say, yes, we can. And he goes, yeah, well, you're gonna. But I still can't give you what you're asking. You can't sit on my right and my left. That's not for me to give to you. Just after that, they're wandering along. 
they're traveling and there are crowds all around and there's a blind man in the crowd and his name is Bartimaeus. And he shouts out when he knows that Jesus is walking by, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people are like, shut up, shut up. And he goes, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears this and he says, bring him here, bring him closer. And when he comes up, Jesus asks him this question, what is it you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus is like, I'd like to see, please. And Jesus gives him his sight and he sees. I think that these two passages are right next to each other with that same question, what is it that you want me to do for you to help teach us about our desires, the things that we want, the things that we go after, to kind of show that our desires don't always line up with what God desires, or our motives aren't always in line with what, uh, what the motives are that God would want us to have. James, the brother of Jesus, he wrote later on, he wasn't there in the upper room discourse, but he did write this later on to the church. He says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. What do you want from Jesus? What is it that you really desire? What is at the root of that desire that you have? Jesus' desire in this passage is that we bear fruit, that we are fruitful, which I think means that we are so connected to him that we are formed and shaped by him and that we don't just come with our desires, but our desires are shaped by him. So our desires are in line with the desires that he has and that eventually our lives are actually in line with the things that Jesus would do. This is how friendships work. We influence one another. Jason and I had a ton of influence on each other. All the time hanging out, we were mimicking each other and becoming more like each other. But influence with Jesus for us to be influenced by, by him happens in the context of prayer and in scripture. That's what he says here in verse seven, just a little bit before our passage. Jesus says, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you remain in me and my words remain in you, when your desires are more formed and shaped by my desires, you can ask and you will receive. And we should ask. Jesus told us to ask. We should not be hesitant in asking Jesus for anything because that's what he told us to do. We can approach pretty boldly with our requests, but sometimes we have to check our motives or our desires when we're going in to do that. But I wanna recognize this too. A lot of your motives aren't bad motives. 
Like Bartimaeus, sometimes you are just crying out to God for mercy. God, would you let me see, please? Would you take away the pain? Would you help me in this circumstance? Would you heal me, please? I need healing. And we don't always get the affirmative response. Even when we pray with right motives, just looking for mercy. But this is a really important aspect where once again, we have a sympathetic friend in Jesus. Because, you know, he didn't get everything that he asked for either. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he goes to die, and he's praying to the Father, Father, if there's any way, would you take this cup away from me? Would you take the suffering away from me? And what did he say right after that? But not my will, not my desire. It's the same Greek word for will, desire, want. Not what I desire, but what you desire. May that be done. We should ask Jesus for all sorts of things. And ultimately, we have to submit our desires and our wills, the things we want, to the Father and hope that our desires can be shaped by Jesus when we go to him, our sympathetic friend who understands what that is like. Prayer doesn't just fulfill our desires, but it, shape, it shapes us. This aspect of submission touches on the second part, and I'll try and make this fast here, of uh, kind of a hang-up that we might have in prayer around this passage. And this part comes from verse 14, where it says, Jesus goes, you are my friends if you do what I command. Just to warn you, uh, this is typically a red flag in relationships. If somebody says to you, um, I'll be your friend if you do whatever I ask, uh, you should probably avoid that friendship. I don't know, unless that's just kind of your, your thing. When there's hundreds of red flags in your relationship, but red's your favorite color. <laughs> or unless we're talking about Jesus, who isn't just our buddy, but who is the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the one who has all authority. Which kind of sounds scary sometimes when somebody has all authority, except when it's Jesus. Because we trust that he is good, that he's loyal, that he's faithful, and that ultimately he is loving. Plus, if you look at the command here, at what it is, verse 17, this is my command. Love each other. Oh, I can get that. That's a good command. Jesus has lots of friends. And so he's telling his friends, y'all should love each other. Love my friends the way that I love them. I have lots of friends. So ultimately, this command results in all of us being good friends. And we could be the kinds of friends that Jesus is. Someone who loves their enemies. Someone who doesn't withhold 
but reveals themselves to others. Someone who will sacrifice for somebody else for their good. The thing that's going to allow us to be that kind of good friend is when we're connected to Jesus. The more you find your home, your rest, your peace, your identity, your joy, your comfort in the presence of Jesus, being shaped and formed by him, the better you will be a friend to somebody else. We need prayer desperately. And not just because we need help coping with the things in our lives or because we need a sympathetic friend, but we need the sympathetic friend who is also the source of life for us, who can actually offer us life. And that's what we see in verse five. He says, yes, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the source of life, and living apart from him is like living like a dried up branch that is lifeless away from him. And prayer is how we remain connected to that vine, remain connected to that source of life. I think about my friend Jason. I haven't seen him in 15 years, but I text him, and sometimes, you know, we get a phone call in to be able to talk a little bit more. But our friendship is different now as well. I was just telling Steph this week, I'm like, oh, I think we have enough airline miles. I'd really like to go visit Jason. And she asked the question, what do you think it'd be like to hang out with him after 15 years of not seeing him? We got families. We've never met each other's kids before. And I think about my connection to Jesus and that he would call me friend. I don't want to go 15 years without seeing him. And I don't want my prayers to just be text messages that I throw up every now and then or a phone call when I'm really desperate and need some more time with him. I just want to sit there and be with him and behold him, read books with him, and cultivate that friendship over time. And that's the invitation that's there for all of us today. Let's pray. Jesus, you have called us friends, um, and you have laid down your life for us, which is incredible. Help us to recognize the, the love that you have for us and the sacrifice that you've made. And thank you that you love us, even if we do go 15 years without seeing you and just throwing up text messages or phone calls every now and then that you are still there and still love us and you're faithful to us. Help us to abide in you. Jesus, help us to remain connected to you, the vine, and that you would fill us with your life, God, that you would, uh, that our lives would overflow with you through the power of your spirit. We look to you, we love you, and we trust you. Amen.